Welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate, relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. Today I continue my conversation with William. If you recall, he's the cishet man who had a near-death experience forcing him to confront addiction and other dysfunctional coping strategies. We chat about intellectualizing feelings as a form of avoiding feeling them, inner child therapy and how effective it can be, reconciling with parents, and our stories we tell ourselves about our lives. We talk about reframing and the role that family plays for us now. So I got on SSRIs and I went to my first therapy session and I expected to just go in, have the sort of meet and greet, blah, 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 tell her my situation. And I didn't expect how I just unloaded on her. I just started and I didn't stop and I didn't stop. She booked me in for an hour session and I'm very grateful. She actually let me run anywhere, probably about a half hour over time. Wow. Because I, I was just... Clearly, clearly, I had a lot on my chest to talk about. And um, after, after you know, about an hour and a half of me just rambling and just going off about all the things that I felt, my experience with inner child therapy has been really amazing because I went on this really long, passionate explanation of, like, my narrative and how... I didn't like I think the first thing that I said to the therapist when I went in and sat down was like I don't really know why I'm here and then I said my parents did this my relationship with my family is like that and I just went on and on and on <laughs> and really really worked up really passionate and we went like a half hour over time and she just saw that I needed to go and go and go and at the end of the time where I'd hit sort of a natural conclusion. She looked at me and she said, okay, I want you to think back to when this started, when these feelings started, this hostility from your father. And it, a lot of it does center around my father. That's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And I pictured myself as this like cute little kid in like a felt onesie with the like little like vinyl feet that we had back in the <laughs> 80s. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And I pictured, you know, big tousled hair and wide-eyed and everything. And she said, okay, you've pictured yourself? I said, yes. And she said, okay, I want you to reach out to this kid with your words. And I want you to tell this kid what he needs to know to be ready for what he's about to go through with your family. And I, and I did. I, in my mind... It's 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 a really powerful yeah it's a powerful experience that I I spoke to this child in my imagination it was the 5 year old version of me and I said you don't deserve this you're not a bad kid you're you're loved and I'm so sorry this is going to happen and I gave myself a big hug 
in my mind's eye. And then I come to and I look at my therapist and she says, you know, you're allowed to cry in here, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. Thank you. Can I, can I pay please? I, you've given me a lot to think about. And, uh, I paid and I got out her office back into the, back into the street, put on sunglasses and just bawled my eyes out. I absolutely mm -hmm. could not believe I could not believe the breakthrough that it had to just reach back in time to the person that I used like reach back in time in my mind, in my emotions to the child that I was and just say like, you know, what did I need to hear when I was that age? I can say that now I can show compassion to myself in a way and, you know, reaching across decades of time. I, I never would have believed that that could help. I never would have believed if I hadn't experienced it for myself. So I had a second experience with inner child therapy that was actually self-guided. And, um, uh, well, let me think. There was a specific point about that I wanted to make, but now I've lost it. It's okay. Oh, no, I do remember the second point. Um, the second time that I experienced it, it was a bit more spontaneous. I was thinking about a really difficult sense of emotions I had around being in a, uh, sorry, it's hard to explain. The second time that I had a really profound breakthrough with inner child's work was self-guided. And I was thinking about how I never felt safe in my home mm -hmm. and felt a lot of, if I was ever at home and it was quiet, getting in evening time, I would get a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. And I remember that feeling. That feeling came from a long time ago when I was a kid. And in my case, it was a, it, everyone in my family knew when you would hear my father's vehicle come into the driveway don't be anywhere near the front door because he's going to lay into the first person he sees. Oh, I know that feeling. You know that feeling? I know that feeling. I yeah. I remember the first time I suspected that that wasn't normal because <laughs> I was at a friend. Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. I, I just was, like empathize oh, pretty intensely. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I was 16 and I was at a friend's house and his dad rolled up into the driveway and I looked at him and just dead serious I'm like where are we going and he's like what are you talking about like it didn't register to him at all that there was even a relationship with his dad getting home and us needing to escape because we were on the main floor near the front door and I had just conditioned myself to know that you scurry you get away from there oh yeah you either run you, up you gotta know your yeah, exits either the, you gotta know your exits yeah exactly you have to have an exit strategy so when I was more recently, I was thinking about where that feeling came from. And then I, I remember seeing myself as like a young man experiencing that. And I got through when I spoke to myself as like, you know, a 12 year old or whatever. And I said, you know, your dad doesn't know any better. His father didn't treat him any better. Your dad loves you. 
and he just doesn't know any better, but he's in a lot of pain and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And I reached out and I gave myself a big hug and then I broke down crying in a public park. (laughs) (laughs) Just like absolutely picked my moment, like a nice crowded sunny day in the park and just grown ass man crying to himself. Which is totally fine, as you do. Oh, yeah. If there's one thing the accident has taught me, it's that I can cry anywhere at any time for any reason, and it's no one else's business. (laughs) (laughs) I've probably cried more since the accident than I did in my teens, period, and maybe in the second half of my first, like, single-digit years. Hmm. Or second half. Did I say second half? Anyway, I'm just trying to be cute. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been crying a lot since the accident because I'll have those kinds of experiences. I had that experience, and I walked home, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and then I swear to God, it felt like I was on drugs. Like I had this huge like unbelievable opening up in my mind and in my chest and in my heart and I could feel it all across my body was like this unbelievable warm buzzing sensation and it was because of the emotional breakthrough that I'd had of like reaching into my past and showing compassion to myself about these really stressful difficult experiences that I'd didn't even have words for and didn't even know I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, I went and had a nap as one does when they think they're on drugs and they're not sure what to do about it. (laughs) So I went and had a nap and I just felt my whole body was just buzzing. And then later that day I woke up, I woke up and I called my father and I said, you know, wow, I know you have, yeah, I, I I called my father and I said, I know you have regrets about the kind of father you were. And I, I didn't want to corner him. You know, I wanted to make sure to reach out and get let him know that I'm not attacking him. So I said, I know I know you have some regrets about the kind of father you were. And he right away said, I was an asshole. I can't believe what an asshole I was. I was such a piece of shit. And I said, okay, oh, okay. Live with. You know, yeah, it's it's amazing to me that he could feel that and never say so. Yeah, but that's a separate story. That's that's his own, that's his own to bear. Yeah, but he said so, and I said to him, you know, I know that you weren't raised in the most loving home. And I know that you weren't given all the tools, and I know you were a lot in a lot of pain too. And I know that you always loved us. I never doubted that. I always knew that you loved us. And, you know, there's a lot of hard feelings about the kind of dad you were, but I want you to know, like, I understand and I forgive you. Like, you did your best. You did your best with the tools you had, and it's not your fault you weren't equipped. Mm hmm. And it was like, it was a moment, like, it was like a Hollywood-esque moment, like roll credits. Like, I never, (laughs) in my life, I never thought that my father and I would have a frank 
conversation about my grievances, about the childhood that I had, the kind of anger and neglect. I never thought that we'd be able to speak about it, but I actually moved to the point of forgiving him and telling him so. That's incredible. And it was a real gift. It was a real gift. I've been thinking a lot about that since the accident. Like, we're all on borrowed time. Like, yeah. you, me, my parents. Like, I can, I can, if I'm careful, I can talk to my parents about these things now because they're going to die one day and I won't get the chance. I won't get the chance to say anything to them. You know, it could be 20 years from now. It could be two days from now. And that's something that the accident's given me a lot more immediacy about. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I'd always been dimly aware that I was going to die one day, but, you know, being 40 and really close, mm -hmm. it really, it really pumped up the urgency and I take it more seriously and I let it affect more of my decisions. I let my own mortality affect more of my decisions and i wish i'd done that much earlier in life but yeah i'm actually just hitting 35 and uh i'm feeling the same thing like just not i shouldn't say the same thing because it's never good to compare human experiences one to one but i'm feeling an increased <laughs> well and also i didn't just have a near-death experience and that definitely changes a lot um but i am noticing a renewed sense of immediacy especially with the pandemic like I had a really, really oh, yes. bad chest infection in March and I'm pretty sure it was COVID, but like we didn't have the testing resources then um, and we didn't have a vaccine then. So it was like, I just got really, really sick. I had pain in my chest. I had like an ineffective cough um, and it got really bad. Like I was close to going to the hospital and then chose not to go and fortunately got better. But uh, yeah. that yeah. experience was a scary experience for me. Obviously, again, not comparing. I'm just saying that it it sort of <laughs> left me coming out of the pandemic with this with this sense of like what the fuck am i doing with my life <laughs> like... absolutely absolutely i think i think the pandemic has given a lot of people the benefit of that and i mean the same thing happened with my accident like i don't even remember it right so it's like whether or not that accident affected me it's like i could have just pretended it didn't and to be the you know the same thing with a close you probably had a closer run in with death as far as what you can remember as as far as, far as what i can remember <laughs> yes yeah because i don't i don't remember the accident i woke up in pretty good shape all things considered pretty stable so well that's cuz you you were in a coma were you not not a coma but um i definitely bonked my head pretty hard i was drunk when i went down um, so how much I would have remembered had the accident not happened at all is up in the air. I'll never, I may never know. I may never have a memory, but wow. they got me into the hospital and then it was surgery, drugs, and then day of recovery, dilaudenin, um, recovery then as well. So there is a block of time that was wiped out for me. Jeez. Hmm. That's uh, that's pretty intense, my friend. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really do, I really do take it to heart that 
Oh. Yeah, if there's one thing that I think is really important, it's just to appreciate, like, you know, I mean, I don't want to get melodramatic, but really, like, death is around any corner. Like, there's a bullet out there with your name on it, like all those cliched things. Mm -hmm. I actually, all my life, I've always felt like it's really important to take cliches seriously and ponder them because some of them have real meaning. And the idea of, like, you know, if you take some of these cliches seriously, there's a lot of wisdom in the idea that there's a bullet out there with your name on it. And if you actually live like that, it can make you, I think, a lot more clear with reality and a lot more clear with the consequences mm -hmm. of what you're doing. But, of course, that's very violent imagery, so that's sure. not for everybody. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, yeah, you you had that reconciling conversation with your father and your – I do feel like you're – good now like not that there is such a thing as being done but do you feel like you're in a space where things are 80 percent of the way there it's it's really amazing it's really amazing to me that i got to have the experience of tidying up a narrative from before my accident with a new perspective and it's given me a much cleaner slate like I, I use the metaphor a lot these days of the albatross around my neck. I'm not, I'm not nearly as burdened with this horrible emotional baggage. When I interact with my dad now, I can do it in a fresh way. I can do it in a current way. Whereas before the accident, every time I talked to my father, it was so laden down with this emotional burden that I carried with me at all times. And now I can approach him with sort of fresh eyes. Like I can see, I can see how things have changed, stay the same. I'm a lot more emotionally relaxed. I'm a lot more on my toes emotionally when I interact with him because I don't feel like I have this huge litany of like grudges and recriminations and blame. Like forgiveness, forgiveness is like an amazing tool. And it's not about it's not about earning or deserving. It's about, you know, just appreciating that I like, we get, we get so caught up with wanting to blame. We get so caught up with wanting to blame, but that's a transactional way of looking mm -hmm. at someone. And really with the people that we love in our life, we have to balance out, you know, transactionalism with the fact that, you know, if you, if you love someone and you want to have a relationship with them, you do have to be compassionate. You have to look at not just their excuses, but their reasons for doing things the way they did. And I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, it hasn't smoothed out everything in our relationship. He still, he still has his ways it's not like he's completely opened up to me it's not like our entire relationship has done some huge pivot where we now talk about all these heavy things that we could never talk about mm -hmm. before but it was it was definitely it's definitely definitely changed my emotional ability to engage with him and it could be a good it could be a good bridge for us to have more conversations in the future awesome i'm really happy to hear that i think so 
Me too. So what role do you think your family has played in a sense of wholeness or healing? Is it just sort of reframing that old narrative or do you feel like there's real support there now where you could actually have conversations with them, like meaningful ones? Um, it's, it's the full gamut. Um, as far as my relationship with my dad, it's about healing. But as far as other, other people in my family, like my siblings or my mother, it's been immense as far as like a lot of, a lot of really, a lot of really powerful conversations of support, especially in the immediate aftermath of me getting back from the hospital, having a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and being able to just like I could throw on my headphones, call my mum and talk to her for like two or three hours and just go walk away from my home and basically just walk a straight line north for a couple hours and then be like, okay, like I feel better now. And like I'd be on the phone with my mum, I'd be I'd be crying, I'd be talking about the kind of life I've lived and how wasted I feel a lot of it's been and it was it was tricky at times for sure because I would have to kind of I would have to tell her what I needed emotionally as far as like coaching her because <laughs> I remember at one at one point because I was just I was just saying like all these things oh like oh my you know my my world is collapsing around me like nothing means anything to me anymore like my entire reason for living just it feels it just feels empty like anytime anything good happens to me it's just like sand through a sieve like nothing sits in me nothing mm-hmm. feels good and and my mom talked about one of the neighbors and how much they sold their house for <laughs> and one of the other neighbors how they put up how they put up a new fence and you remember so-and-so their son died of cancer. And I'm like, what the fuck mom? Like, I don't want to talk about these people I've never even heard of before. And my mom snapped at me and she's like, well, I don't know what you need. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I don't know how to tell you that it just breaks my heart so much that you're in so much pain and I love you so much. And I wish there was something I could do and I wish I could reach out and help. And I was like, Mom, that's exactly what you fucking said. <laughs> that's all I needed like, to hear. Yeah. You have no idea. Yeah, you have no idea how much that helped me to hear you say that. Like, I am. I feel like my world is collapsing around me, and just knowing that mm-hmm. you care, and it was like, she's like, I don't know what the hell you want to hear. <laughs> so, but yeah, she would. Yeah, she would had this really horrible habit of just gossiping about who was dying. <laughs> That was mostly what she wanted to talk about. Who has cancer? Who's dying? People I've never heard of. People she's met two or three times. But yeah, and then I've been talking with my uh, my brother a lot. My brother had an interesting perspective because my brother's an ER nurse mm-hmm. himself, uh, quite far away. He's a few provinces over. But um, it was interesting because he could help me understand a lot. And I could tell him a lot of the medical things that I'd been going through, and he could just stay very comfortable and very clinical about everything. And that was actually really helpful. But it it also meant that I could talk to him 
being able to be very clinical and very frank about the trauma of the accident also that made a huge bridge of trust where I could just say to him like you know I don't remember doing cocaine that night but I did like it came through mm -hmm. on the piss test and um, I found out about that later and I, I suspected like when I woke up I kind of had it in the back of my head I'd only ever tried it once before years ago and I mm -hmm. said never again but I remember seeing it at that party and thinking when I woke up in the hospital, I was like, I wonder, I wonder if I got myself into that. And sure enough, I did. And it, it was the kind of thing I never thought I could talk to my brother about, but just, I did. I told him what happened. I said how the test came up and he was, he was very, he was very matter of fact about it. You know, he didn't shame me. He didn't. He didn't try and make me feel like a bad person. He just, you know, oh shit, like, you know, that's pretty serious. And I said, you know, this is this is a one-off as far as I can tell. Like I've tried it once before. This as far as I, I never intended to do this again. And um, it meant a lot to me that, you know, he didn't get all hysterical and he didn't overreact. He actually took it in stride really well and let me know that, you know, oh, well, just made me feel okay, yeah. you know? Yeah, having family and the ability to chat like that, I think it really, it's something I didn't know was possible for a long time. Yeah. And yeah. I've recently been building a bridge with my brother and seeing him more. Um, I don't want to share too much of his story, but there's been a lot of, um, a lot of struggle in his life. And as there has been in mine and my sister's life as well, we all come from the same parents and we've all, you know, adapted and maladapted yeah, yeah. in different ways. I think my sister's the most functional of us. Um, she has two beautiful daughters mm -hmm. who are lovely nieces and a lot of fun to hang out with. And truthfully, they make me want kids someday, I think, but. I don't know whether those are going to be adopted kids or if it's just a pipe dream being a millennial with uh, my financial situation at uh, 35, but there's still time. Yeah. There's still time. I just have to remind <laughs> myself of that is like people, yeah. you know, you can always adopt someone that's older. You know, if you find you're getting to the point where you're like, I don't want to be 65 with kids, you know, like there's a certain point where you're like, maybe I should just start with a seven year old. <laughs> maybe I should just start with an older child. It'd yeah. be a little yeah. easier. Um, just 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 skip the uh, tutorial <laughs> go straight into skip the... the first boss skip the tutorial head straight yeah. in on you know season two it's yeah. a better season better reviews um exactly. yeah yeah having having that sense of family i didn't know was possible and then it's only been since my sister had kids that there's really been any effort i think to really try and make a family because i think my brother and i both saw my sister making family and her willingness to set boundaries and be like, you know what, mom, <laughs> you can have a relationship with my kids, but I don't want a relationship with you anymore. And sort of the phases of that, um, was really empowering, wow. like just to see her set boundaries. So it's something I very much look up to. And I'm actually currently trying to forgive my mom. So I'm struggling with a lot of the issues that you sound like you just sort of moved through with incredible grace. If I might add, cause I, I, I know from having those conversations, they don't always feel graceful. <laughs> But I think once they're in the once they're in the past, oh. though, you're like, I'm so happy that's done. And I feel like my rose colored glasses, like looking at that from the outside, I'm like, 
you actually did it though. Like you had one of those conversations with your dad and like for those people who aren't assigned male at birth, socialized as men, you know, like that's, that is a hard conversation to have. In fact, um, yeah, like you've lived it. (laughs) Um, I, I literally spent money on an international phone plan so I could phone my dad in India to just be like, Hey, like I've realized that if I don't, make the time and call you, we won't talk. And I've realized that if I don't make the time and don't call you for enough years, you'll be dead. Um, I didn't say any of that, but that was what happened in my head. And that's what I wanted to say. (laughs) Um, But I didn't say it. So yeah, Carrie, I'm saying it on a podcast instead, but (laughs) better to talk directly. It's it. It's, it's tricky. Those phone conversations, you don't want to come out swinging. Like, there's some things I want to say before you die <laughs> is basically saying like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, what I would like to yeah. do is to be able to have a similar conversation of like, I know that, you know, you weren't always proud of the way you parented or, and you weren't always proud of your choices. Um, and that at a certain point, you know, that buck has to get passed and it becomes my work to do for the next generation. And I want you to know, I've taken that on in earnest and I'm really trying to do that work. I think I think there's a lot to be said for starting with, you know, like hypothetically using the story mm-hmm. you just told me, starting out by just saying, like, tell me a story. Like, what's what's your version of events? Like, I only ever I only ever lived one side of this dialectical relationship, but I don't think I ever actually just asked to hear your version. Like, mm-hmm. tell me everything. And I think that. Sometimes, especially in a relationship of dysfunction, you get so caught up narratives, in sort of the present moment. I said narratives. What's that? Yeah, you get so caught up in the present moment of exchange. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like the best, the best dramas that are ever written. Every conversation that happens between tense characters, you can pick up the sense that. Oh my God, they've had this conversation 20 times before, (laughs) you know, or like someone gets out of bed and they say, where have you been? Like, there's accusation in that. That's for no damn reason. Like, you know, and that's, that's, that's exactly what it's like when you're in these fraught relationships Mm -hmm. with people where you're each just ready for the latest volley. And it's really good to flip the script and say like, Hey, you know, I want I want to hear a story from you. I want you to tell me a narrative. I want you to tell me things that I never suspected. I want to hear a story. Everyone almost loves telling stories. I actually invited so, I invited my dad I mean, on maybe, this podcast, and there are published episodes of my dad having that conversation with me. And yeah, it was middling. Um, it didn't it didn't hit the depths that I was hoping it would. But it also subversively did. So it's like some of the stuff that he sort of says between the lines is very comprehensible to me as his son slash child. Um, I can sort of like hear what he's saying when, you know, like he sort of mentioned at one point that, you know, he knows we had a pretty rough childhood. Um, And I think superficially he Mm -hmm. blames my mom a lot for that. But I know that he takes some responsibility in there as well. And. It was just really interesting. I've never I've never had a conversation before that podcast with him where he felt like he was on the ropes. 
or at least that was my perception that mm-hmm. he was like, I'm being recorded right now <laughs> and published. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a weird power dynamic to be in. I mean, obviously if he'd wanted anything taken down, it would have taken it down. In fact, um, there's stuff that I, that I recorded with my mom when I had my mom on the podcast, that's not publishable, but that I kept for my nieces in case they ever wanted to hear the tape of their, um, you know, late grandmother. So there, there is some like mm-hmm. really personal stuff that she chose not to share. I was really excited to share it. And then she was like, ah, on second thought, let's not publish that one. And I was like, ah, all right, but it was so good. And she was like, ah, it's too personal. I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. That's the name of the show, but all right. I will stupid consent and honoring people's <laughs> wishes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ethics. Ethics. What a garbage field. You. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's kind of a nice end cap on our second session. But I just wanted to say thank you for being on the second session. Of course. My pleasure. So how did you like it, Intimates? Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com forward slash intimate victor or tweet me at intimate victor or follow my Instagram, you guessed it, at intimate victor. If you can spare the cost of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash victor salmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a review anywhere online, especially iTunes, or you can just tell a friend. The opening music is on hold for you, made of algorithmically generated notes and chords, and played by an AI-rendered saxophonist. The closing music is Gymnopédie, number one, by Eric Satie. Both are provided royalty-free, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time, and may your most important relationships be filled with the intimate, rich interactions you crave. Be well. <laughs>